And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic. Alongside us uh, from The Athletic, football news reporter Matt Slater. Coming up today, we're going to talk to Joey Durso, investigations writer covering football for The Athletic, about the collapse of Football Index, the so-called football stock market that has seen users' portfolios crash to almost nothing. And as it's football account season, Kieran Maguire from the Price of Football podcast joins us to run the numbers and pick out the talking points in the books of clubs, including Manchester United. This is the Business of Sport from The Athletic. Let's start this pod then by talking to Joey Dursay, the Athletics Investigations writer, because he's written a, both an astonishing and an extensive piece on the collapse of the football index. We're recording this Wednesday morning. The first thing to say, Joey, before we get into explanations, is that by the time this pod drops on a Thursday, the story could have moved on again. It is that fast moving. That's right. Things are moving very quickly, but this all happened on Friday night. So football index is, it calls itself a combination of a football stock market, gambling and fantasy football. And it's easy to get into very complicated stuff very quickly with this, but the principle underlying it is fairly straightforward. It's sort of a stock market for footballers. So if you buy a, you know, a messy share will be worth lots of money. The sort of, you know, Rotherham left back won't be so much money. If you bought a Haaland share three years ago, it will have gone up loads. So if you know about football, if you know about diamonds in the rough, you can you can make money. You also get something called uh, dividends, which is basically a bit like fantasy football points. So if you own uh, Bruno Fernandes and he gets lots of goals and assists, then you get real money, pennies, and you have this in your sort of portfolio. And lots of people got rich off it and made lots of money from this over many years. And this was ubiquitous in football. There were adverts all over Talk Sports, Sky Sports. It was on... QPR and Nottingham Forest shirts. Now, the company's been facing financial difficulties. I mean, it's really unclear when these difficulties came about, but the company put out repeated statements over the last three or four months saying that it was in good health. But then suddenly, I deny it said, we're going to have to slash these dividend payments. So basically, if you own a Bruno Fernandes and he scores a goal, instead of getting 8p, you get 3p, for example. And that basically meant that the value of the shares collapsed overnight. And people had tens of thousands of pounds in these shares. So, uh, and, you know, I've spoken to people who have gone from having 40 grand worth of shares to like, you know, three grand and people who have lost smaller sums of money than that, but for whom that's their life savings. You know, I spoke to one guy who lost about 4,000 pounds, who was frankly uh, mentally like on the brink. And thankfully at the point I spoke to him, he had spoken to a doctor, had spoken to his family, but people have lost extraordinary sums of money overnight. It's a scandal. Because it was seen as an investment rather than yeah. a bet. So this is one of the 
strange things about football index you know it's, it's a gambling product it's regulated by the gambling commission if you look at the terms of commissions conditions it says you can lose your money you can't lose more than you put in right so people put in 50 grand and they've lost 45 grand but the way it was marketed was a sort of investment product and you know if you put loads of money in the stock market you know some of them might go up and down but you don't expect the entire thing to crash by 90 percent overnight so it was, it was seen as this investment vehicle and the the language coming out of the company for years was this sort of investment stock market language. You know, there's an absurd tweet from 2017 by the founder, which said, Zlatan currently outperforming annual Bank of England interest rate every 12 hours. I mean, basically, a share in Zlatan was going up by however many percent. And a bank of the Bank of England interest rate was whatever. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's not real. It's not, these shares are not real things. You know, if you own a share in Apple, that's gone up by loads in the last 20 years, because Apple as a company has made loads of money. A share in, you know, a share in Bruno Fernandes has crashed to almost nothing, not because Bruno Fernandes has done his ACL, but because this market has imploded because of the changes that the platform has made to it. And that's why so many of these people are fuming, because, you know, if you gamble money, you know, if I put 100 quid on Man City to win at the weekend, I know there's a chance they'll lose. And But these people that have bet on Bruno Fernandes have lost loads of money because of Football Index as a company. So it's not akin to a conventional bet here. Well, Joe, you're absolutely right to call it a disgrace. I know in your headline, you call it a Ponzi scheme. And, you know, the principle of a, of a Ponzi scheme is to rob Peter to pay Paul. You know, they are, you know, pyramid schemes is, a, is, a, is another sort of similar concept. I have been, re- I must admit, this kind of passed me by. I think I saw the adverts and thought, oh, that looks like gambling to me. I just thought, right, I'm staying well away from that. Over the last week or so, I've read a lot about it. I've looked at their marketing that still exists. It's still all over social media. They they are absolutely trying to convince and hoodwink and fool people that this is a stock exchange. That The very fact they use the word dividend. Let's just focus on dividend because I think this really cuts to the heart of what's happened, what's changed. When you buy a share in Apple, it's not the stock exchange that's paying you a dividend. It's Apple, right? You have bought a slice of a company. Now, when you buy a share in Bruno Fernandes on Football Index, Bruno Fernandes does nothing about it. You've not bought a a slice of Bruno Fernandes. The dividend that you are being paid comes from Football Index. How are they doing that? Do they have a magic money tree? No, they don't. They have the money of new investors. That is the definition of a Ponzi scheme. Yeah, it's probably just important to read out. A Football Index spokesperson said, we categorically deny any allegations that Football Index's model is similar in any way to that of a pyramid scheme. Football Index is a gambling product regulated by the Gambling Commission and operates within a tightly regulated industry. The Ponzi scheme, so lots of fans are focusing on this very specific email which was sent to customers last week, which says Football Index has substantial cash reserves. However, in the coming months, Football Index sustained consistent and substantial losses due to very low deposit levels, which depleted their reserves. Now, people are interpreting that to mean the dividends are being paid from the deposits. They're not being paid from Bruno Fernandez doing well. It's getting the new people in. And when the new people stop coming in, there's no money left. The other way they brought liquidity back into the market, i.e. interest, people buying again, is they cut all the prices and they stop people from being able to sort of get out of positions. Yeah. I mean, if this was a stock exchange, there would be a riot. There would be people yeah. appearing at the gates of the stock exchange throwing stuff yeah and and this is regulated by the uk gambling commission um you know they were given license to do this and people have lost huge sums of money and people i've I've had messages from people saying you know how do i get my money back this is clearly there's nothing wrong here how do i i don't have an answer to that you know i don't know where the in uk regulation and the uk uk gambling commission's terms and conditions how people do get their money back what i don't understand or and maybe this is me being really thick is how the share price 
of a player is determined. I mean, is that simply done by people who run Football Index? Oh, right, okay. Bruno Fernandes has moved from... I feel a bit sorry for Bruno Fernandes because we're using him as the example in all of this. An interesting one is, say, Rhys James, because, like, two years ago, no one had heard of him and now he's worth loads. So that's an example of a... If you're really knowledgeable about football, you might have made loads of money by buying a 1,000 Rhys James shares, like, two years ago. But then, I don't know, Rhys James is at 5p two years ago and I buy a thousand 5p shares in Reese James who then decides that he goes up to 50p it's based on there's a sort of spread between the buy and the sell and if lots of people buy then it goes up and if lots of people go down but but that's also dictated by the dividends so if when the dividends were slashed about nine months ago the share price fell a bit because owning a share is worthless and now when they cut them by 80 percent the share so so the share price is not just dictated by how well someone's doing on the pitch but the whole time this has been going along it's been and it's just got more and more complicated and more and more confusing. And there are these people, you know, people, there are some people who are sort of, you know, accountants and commercial lawyers who have been emailing me who sort of, the level of complexity is absurd. And that's why so many people have been stung by this. It's certainly set out to be something different, to be a more sophisticated gambling product, to sort of inhabit that space between a stock market type game, if you like, concept to, you know, the Akers that, that Mark and other people, the gambling that you know that millions of us do at, at weekends, right? It wanted to be something more highbrow, and it obviously wanted to have elements of fantasy football in there as well, which of course is you know you know yeah. part of the zeitgeist now as well. So look, I'm not I'm not saying it's not a clever concept. I'm not saying that at all. Well, so so lots of people, even people that have lost five figure sums, are messaging me. Yeah. It's very yeah, defensive yeah. of the concept, and people people and you know one guy said to me, which I thought you know I've never played football index but made me realize why people like it he was like oh i was stuck in the middle of the pandemic you know life was a bit rubbish and i was watching frankfurt against wolfsburg on bt sport because i had players you know it's, it's a reason why lots of people gamble is because it makes football yes. more engaging yes. more interesting um you've got something riding on it um and i think that's what made it appeal to lots of people it's kind of easy to be like these people are idiots but it was an exciting interesting product and it was regulated by the uk gambling authorities and it was all over like you know qpr and nottingham forest shirts so when i look at the way it was at the beginning and the way people approach the game if you like was about these long-term punts how smart can i be can i take long-term positions like an investor would can i find a reese james Who's, who's no one heard of now, but because I'm smart and I know stuff about football, I think that player is going to be really good in two or three years' time. So I'm backing my knowledge against the crowd's knowledge. Now, that sounds like fun to me, right? I get that. But I think as the game has grown, people taking long-term positions does not work for the business model of this stock exchange, which isn't really a stock exchange. It needs people to be going up and down quickly. So that's where you get in. I think what Mark was asking really was how do you decide who's up and who's down? And that's where you bring in the more, how have they done this weekend? How many goals do they score? So that then gets us closer to fantasy football. So the game, I think, has evolved. You've gone from people who were being smart and trying to take long-term positions as they would if they picked a stock to people just playing it like a sort of fantasy football game meets gambling, meets, meets my weekend bets. So the game already had contradictions built into it that only really makes sense if you remember that it is gambling. It's got nothing to do with the stock exchange. It is gambling. And if that was made completely clear and upfront, then all we have here is, I'm sorry, lots of sad stories and another more cautionary tales. But I think this is more than that because of the way it was marketed. And I think also with the stock market, you know, if you're investing in the stock market and you make 
seven, eight, nine percent a year, you're doing really well, right? But to make significant sums of money of that, you need to have a massive amount invested. So, which is what was happening. People have put 30 grand in and made 10%. Um, but then that 30 grand's gone to three grand. Even buying shares in companies is a is a is a fine line between investing and, and gambling, isn't it? I mean, Definitely. you are to, you are taking a you are taking a punt when you buy stocks and shares as well. Just just going back to how the collapse unfolded, have have users decreased? Have amounts of money being invested decreased because of the pandemic, and therefore, you know, people are having to tighten their belts? Is there a, is there a reason behind this collapse? Well, I mean, that's what people are trying to trying to work out. I mean, I've been having some very interesting messages with people who worked with and for the company um, literally in the last day or so. So if anyone's listening to this and wants to get in touch, please do, because people are trying to work out when. The company put out a series of very, you know, as recently as the 10th of Feb, they were sending messages to people basically saying we're in a brilliant financial position. Um, and then whatever it was, 5th of March, they said we've had no money for months. So we're still trying to work out exactly when this became clear. And they are still trading as we record the this. The market's still trading, yeah. So when we talk about the collapse of football index, we mean the collapse in share prices. It's still working. And the kind of slightly worrying thing is that lots of people, that there's now a bit of a sort of movement to say you're talking it down, you know, because people are, people are very scared of it going bust yeah. now. Because if you're, thir- and also it's a dilemma, right? If you're, and there's been a little bit of a rebound in the last few days, the last two days. So say your 30 grand went to three grand, now it's up to five, and you're thinking, maybe if I just cling on, I'll get more of my money back. And now some of those people are getting very angry at those who, you know, I've had quite a lot of angry messages in response to my article saying, you know, why are you saying all this stuff about being a Ponzi scheme? You know, we just need it to recover. It's a good concept. It's a good idea. And then there's other people who are just pulling their money out and taking the massive loss. But, you know, one message that really stuck me, I'll, 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 I'll read it out because it's the end of my article, is, you know, a guy who didn't want to use his name, said, I tried to write it out to see what happened, but ended up cashing out for an £8,000 loss. I was shocked they could legit- they could change the way the platform operated for my initial investment. I'd rather not be named as I've got to explain to my wife what happened and then I have to deal with that. And that's so much of this is people having to explain to their family and friends, you know, sorry, no summer holiday this year or, you know, sorry, that house deposit has gone. You have heard, haven't you, some harrowing accounts. Well, I mean, one of your tweets was, when I made the move to football journalism, I didn't expect to be having phone calls that were as harrowing as a couple of the ones I've just had with people who have lost their savings. Yeah, I've, I've spoken to several people, you know, and they're all young men, um, you know, sort of a particular demographic, young men who like football, who, you know, potentially it's people who have a bit more cash on their hands because it's a pandemic, potentially a bit bored because it's a pandemic. And people are mentally on the, you know, I've heard people saying that they know members of this community they haven't really heard from, that they're worried about. Um, yeah, I, as I said, I spoke to the one guy who was quoted in the article who was in a really difficult place and got medical help and he's doing all right now. But, you know, people are worried that there are others who aren't in such a good place now because if you've lost your family's life savings, that's a hard thing to go through. And I, um, I, I put at the bottom of the article and I put in all my tweets um, to contact Samaritans or Talk Band Stop, which is a gambling charity in there. They have helplines, they have phone numbers. So if you have been affected by this issue, please do reach out to them. They're there to help. Joe, has anyone from the football world spoken to you, contacted you? Because obviously, look, we know that they had a big marketing budget. They're on the front of a couple of shirts. They had a podcast. They had, you know, ambassadors, um, you know, journalists, you know, were involved in podcasts. And, you know, so so they, they had some money to spend. Um, yeah. What has been the response yeah. from the industry, if you like? I haven't heard much, to be honest. I did reach out to QPR to try and... And they haven't responded. It'd be interesting to see what those two clubs do with their 
shirts, whether they drop the sponsor. Yeah, lots of people have taken money from this company, have advertised with them. You know, they were legally regulated by the UK Gambling Commission. So I don't particularly blame those individuals too much for not knowing what's going on here. I mean, it was a legal product. It was advertised everywhere. What happens now? Because I can certainly understand those people who've invested in it going... Mm. You know, for God's sake, stop talking it down. Stop, stop, stop doing this. Stop doing that because we need it to recover for, for the sake of our investments. What what happens now? Whose responsibility is it to try and sort this out? Well, the Gambling Commission won't comment on individual cases and won't uh, confirm if they're doing an investigation. We'll get shown the investigation in a while, but we, we don't know if they're investigating it. You know, I, I hope they are. And it, it also feel, falls between the two stools between. The UK Gambling Commission and the Financial Conduct Authority, which mm-hmm. regulates finance, you know, anything on the stock market is, is a completely separate institution. And it's sort of, you know, is it gambling? Is it investment? There's it's basically a, a gap in the law, in the regulation. So, you know, it seems very clear to me this should never have been regulated in the way it was. No. We will leave it there, Joey. Thank you very much to you for explaining that for us. And obviously, there will be more to come on it yeah. from you on The Athletic. We will keep an eye on it as well. Thank you, Joey. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Joey. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Well, let's move on to football clubs and their accounts. Uh, A load of them have opened them up for public consumption at this time of year. And and that is actually very interesting, genuinely, if you know what to look for. It is, isn't it, Matt? I'm actually saying that the accounts are very interesting. You're absolutely right, Mark. They're fascinating. (laughs) We're in account season, which is like uh, award season for actors. For kind of people that like numbers, account season is brilliant. They all have to come in now because the leagues need to see them for their regulatory purposes. And they have to, and this this is like... A little poke, a little sort of glimpse we get into behind the curtain. Really, they have to they have to eventually post them at companies' house as well because they're companies and therefore have to abide by the law of the land. Now, they're snapshots. They don't tell us absolutely everything, but if you know where to look and if you know how to kind of piece them together, you can put the snapshots together and maybe get a bit of a moving picture. They can be a little bit daunting because it uses lots of weird language, like any little private club law football tactics, whatever it might be, right? There's lingo. But once you sort of read a few of them, they are in a complete, they're a, they're a template and you can completely go to the bits that you need to go to. Like how much they, how much the wages are, who's the best paid director is always a good one. You go right to the notes to work out which other bits of the company are sending, you know, a kind of propping the company up, the interest on, on, on the loans. They're always in the same place. So you've read one, you don't understand it at all. You read two or three, you're like, oh, hold on, there's a pattern here. I like patterns. You read five or six, you've got it sorted. 
Now, I am literally, and I'm, I'm, I'm a self-taught amateur, but, you know, I like them because I, I do think they're giving us something that we don't get anywhere else in football. But the man we're about to talk to is an absolute pro. He's done it. I think he's written them. Have you not? Have you have you, have you audited account companies, Kieran? Yes, including football clubs. There you go. He's written about this. I've got the books. He's got a podcast. He's the man. He's the price of football. He's Kieran Maguire. And your podcast is fantastic. So let's start with that. We're all friends together in the podcast world. When you look at the accounts that have been released, then is it possible to detect a common theme? Or not? Yes, uh, certainly as far as 2020 is concerned in the Premier League, we now have, I think, nine clubs that have published their accounts. Together, uh, I think the clubs have lost close on £600 million in terms of their their day-to-day activities. So it shows how dependent clubs are on the three main sources of revenue, which is going to be broadcasting, ticket sales and commercial it also shows how precarious the, the, the nature of the industry is in terms of the reliance upon these income streams, because unlike other industries, it can't cut costs because its main costs are in the form of players. Players are tied to long-term contracts. It's a precarious industry. It's not one I'd ever recommend if people want to make money. Over time, we have discussed whether fans were necessary because of the amount that was brought in by broadcast deals. So bearing in mind, you've mentioned those three revenue streams there and included ticket sales. Do you think it might cause a rethink from some people that fans are valued and are required, certainly financially? There was a report done by the the BBC uh, about two years ago, and it showed that I think 11 clubs in the Premier League would have still broken even without any ticket sales. But those tended to be the clubs with relatively small grounds. So the likes of Bournemouth, Burnley, Crystal Palace, where they are generating between 85 and 90% of their revenues through broadcasting. What we've seen in 2020 is the broadcasting money stopped as well because football stopped. You take away A, the ticket sales, and B, a proportion of the broadcasting money, and that's why we were left in the mess. Can football clubs survive without fans financially in the Premier League? Yes. As soon as you drop down into the EFL, certainly not, because the TV money goes. Would you want to do that? Certainly not. We've seen over the course of the last 12 months, it's not football that we're watching, not football as as, as I grew up with in terms of you actually now realise just how important fans are. And, and I was t- talking to the chief executive of, of one Premier League club and he says the only good thing that might come out of this is perhaps those clubs who have historically taken clubs for taken their fans for granted now realise perhaps we need to work a little bit harder because the atmosphere, the, the, the passion that they create, it does impact upon a, what the viewers are seeing on television, but also the players are saying the same uh, because it's it's not giving them their push. If you hit the post, if, if there's a shot just goes wide and everybody's going, ooh, and the crowd are up for it, then that pushes the players on. So Kieran, we are, as I mentioned, right in the midst of accounts season. I think in the last week or so, we've seen, what was it, West Ham? We've seen a Man United update. I think Arsenal, Sheffield Wednesday, Peterborough. I probably missed a few. There are two, I think, main points about this whole set we're getting at the moment. One is they're all dreadful. They weren't that great before, because as we've mentioned many times on this podcast, football's not a great investment, but, they, but they're, they're not good. And COVID's had an obvious impact, and we know that. But the other thing is that because of COVID and because of when it hit, how it hit, 
it's made comparisons really difficult. It shifted revenues out of one year into another. Can you just talk me through that? Because that's something that's come up in a lot of the reporting I've done, where I've tried to say, look, trust me, it's all bad, right? But doing a direct comparison with the year before is hard because of Project Restart shifting a lot of revenue from 2018-19 into 19-20. Can you just talk us through that? In terms of ticket sales, realistically, most Premier League clubs, most clubs in the Championship, they lost between you know, five and seven home games. So even for those fans who have declined a rebate of their season tickets. And I, and I was one of them. I said, right, I'm not going to miss the money that much. We get sucked into this viewpoint that uh, you know you want to financially support a multi-million pound enterprise. And, and, that, and that as a concept, I think is, a, is quite amazing in its own right. Um, so the matches which didn't get, which took place after the 31st of May for some clubs or after the 30th of June, depending on when their year end, those matches, the revenue from them, both the ticket sales, which probably going to be rebated for quite a few clubs in the Premier League, less so as we drop down into the EFL because more and more fans were declining rebates. Um, but as far as the broadcast money was concerned, when we had Project Restart, football kicked off again after the 30th of June. And therefore, the broadcasting money for those final four or five matches, which had been scheduled for Sky and BT, they, because they uh, physically took place after the 30th of June, therefore, from the accounting point of view, you can only recognise those in the 2020-21 account. So we will see a big drop. And uh, certainly looking at the figures for all of the Premier League clubs, they're, they're reporting drops of around about a quarter of broadcasting revenue. That will bounce back in 21, because as we know, you, you cannot spend an evening these days without football being live on TV. But 21 will then see uh, huge uh, decreases in other areas because it will have been a whole season without... Well, probably a whole season without fans. So Manchester United, yeah. who, who are quoted on the New York Stock Exchange and therefore have further reporting obligations, they have to go and report their, their results every quarter. They've, they've reported a 94% drop in terms of their matchday revenue. United would normally expect around about £110 million a year from ticket sales. And whilst the Glazers get a lot of stick from many parties, you know, the one thing which is really good from my point of view about Manchester United is that they've not increased ticket prices for the last decade. So therefore you can see the genuine impact of if they get knocked out of a cup early, if they don't, they're only qualifying for the Europa Cup instead of the Champions League, you see those impacts coming through quite well. 2020-21, I think they've got £3 million worth of ticket sales. We'd normally expect that to be 50 to 55. How have they only dropped 94% on match day revenue when when they can't be? What, what What's the other 6%? Um... I, I was because I you would you would surely expect just to drop a hundred percent, wouldn't you? It, it could be that some clients of the club have said we are willing to uh, forego rebates and things of this nature. Right. Um, you know, clubs have approached fans to give credit to Manchester United. I, I don't think they've done that because they see themselves as a as a global organisation in terms of, you know, they want to be able to go and talk to the markets in New York, and if and if they are seen to be sort of handing out the begging bowl to fans to say, how can we pay David De Gea is 300 grand a week? We need you to yeah. chip in here. I don't think that would go down well from a PR perspective. 
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Just one more on United then, Kieran. Bearing in mind they're seen as you know the barometer, I suppose, for their commercial impact and the revenues they bring in. What did you learn from looking at their accounts? Manchester United's personnel come in for a lot of stick uh, in terms of having an official tractor partner in Japan and their noodle snack partners, but never has that been more important in, in terms of providing financial stability for the club. People will have picked up that they they have a uh, a borrowing facility which they're starting to use, and and is this a cause for concern? You know, they they'll point out that the net debt has gone up significantly, but compared to the early years of the Glazer ownership, for my sins, I've got every set of Manchester United's account. In fact, I've got every set of every Premier League club's accounts going back to when it was formed in 1992 they are actually in a relatively strong position because they are not paying the same rates of interest. Debt is not a problem. You know, borrowing money is not a problem. It's repaying it that's the issue. And given that the loans are not due for repayment for a good few years, therefore they only have the interest to worry about. The interest rates are low. They have paid out you know, close on £850 million in interest. The vast majority of that was in the first six or seven years of the Glazer ownership. So they are in a as strong a position as you could hope to be, given that we're operating in the the entertainment and hospitality and service sector of an economy where people are not allowed to go out of their houses. Earlier on, when I was asking you about the um, sort of time shifting element we have now with the accounts because of COVID, I got my years wrong. And I got my years wrong because I was thrown last night by a particularly interesting set of accounts, which I'd love to ask you about. And that's Sheffield Wednesday. Now, we have been waiting for these for seven and a half months. They finally arrived yesterday. And they're not the accounts of last season, are they? They're the accounts from the season before. And there is a very, very interesting, first of all, they're there for 14 months. So the previous year was for 14 months. And why was that? Because they were trying to sneak in the stadium sale, which was to get around financial fair play. That ruse failed. They had to go to a disciplinary panel. So they had to move the profit from selling Hillsborough 
into season 18-19, restate. So I want you to explain what restating means. The previous year's accounts. And basically what we've got then is we've got from 2017 to, to May, end of May 2019, we've got a picture of Hillsborough, a picture of Sheffield Wednesday, which is losing heaps of cash with one great, well, sorry, two one-off profits in there. One, the sale of Hillsborough for 60 million. And the other, a confidential compensation settlement for six and a bit million. And we certainly suspect it is for three gentlemen who now work for Newcastle United, although, of course, it's confidential and no one is really admitting that they did pay that much money for Steve Bruce and his assistant. So Sheffield Wednesday accounts discuss. But where, where do you go? Because they are, for me, they just tell the why I get excited about accounts, because every single Sheffield Wednesday story is buried in those accounts. Yes. Uh, I mean, I, I always say that the numbers are unimportant. It's the story behind the numbers that the that, 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 that generates all the, the intrigue. Sheffield Wednesday were losing a fortune. Under Delphon Chancery, uh, in, instead of spending £2 million a year on transfers, it became 12. Instead of having a wage bill of... £12 million a season, as they did under, was it Mandarich, the previous owner, that £12 million became £35 million a season. So Chancery wanted to go up. How do you get up? Football's a talent industry. You go out and buy the talent. You pay the talent. The downside of that is that under the financial fair play rules, if you lost more than £39 million over three seasons, you, season, you were subject to sanctions. They did their sums in 2018, and first of all, they realised they were going to go way overboard. They, they, were, they were in deep, deep doo-doo. How can you reduce your losses? You can reduce your losses, A, by cutting costs. Not possible. The players are on long-term contracts. And, all court, of course, the fans want to see those players anyway. Uh, and, and remember, Wednesday within, were within very, very close, close to promotion themselves. You know, they, they did get into the playoffs in, uh, in 2016. They beat Brighton in the semi-finals. I was at Hillsborough for that night when we had we managed to get four players injured within fifty minutes. We ended up playing with ten men. Uh, one of the most bizarre experiences of, of a football ground I've ever been to. So they deservedly beat us in the semi-finals. They then lost to Hull. They were so committed to going up, they kept spending the money. When it got to twenty eighteen did the sums, they were going to overshoot in terms of financial fair play. You can't cut costs. What do you need to do? You need to find some extra money. Now, for reasons which have never been made clear, in 2016, the EFL changed the rules for financial fair play. Under UEFA rules, if you sell a club stadium, the profits from it do not count towards FFP. And that used to be the case for both the Premier League and the EFL. In 2016, the Premier League changed its rules and the EFL says we'll copy whatever the Premier League do. And therefore, Derby County, Sheffield Wednesday, uh, Birmingham City, Reading and Aston Villa all said, well, we've got something which we can sell, which is of value, the stadium. The trouble is nobody in their right minds wants to buy it. And as a club, we don't particularly want to sell it. So in each of those cases, the owners said, oh, we'll set up a company and we'll buy it at, at some you know, perfectly well-researched prices. Sheffield Wednesday did that and they sold Hillsborough 
to a company called Sheffield 3, which is owned by Delphon Chancery, for an agreed price of £60 million. The trouble is, by the time they realised that they had FFP problems, the clock was ticking. So the first thing they did, Sheffield Wednesday always used to produce their accounts to the 31st of May. So they said, right, well, we will now extend our year end to the 31st of July. We'll drop, we'll arrange the profit on the sale of the stadium and we'll drop that profit into the 2018 accounts. And that way we'll satisfy financial fair play. They didn't get the paperwork done. If you take a look at the the, uh, the ruling, and you know, I'm sure you, I know Matt, you've been through every page just as I have. They, they were they were slow, and, and therefore the sale actually took place after the 31st of July 2018. And the EFL says, in which case you can't count you can't count those as profits, and we're going to give you initially a 12 point penalty last season. Thanks to the mighty Nick DeMarco, that was then pushed back to this season. And once again, yeah, and they should have, they should have a statue of this guy outside Hillsborough, in my in my view. Uh, that twelve points then became six. There has been a reduction in terms of the charges. There is a bit of a problem because in the accounts it says that the profit on the sale of Hillsborough took place in 2018. The EFL have said you can't have it, so. Let's pretend that we that, that the rule didn't apply. So this this changing of the numbers, they said, all right, it didn't work last year. We're now going to shift those profits into the 2019 accounts because I suspect and it's not it's never not been clarified by the EFL that instead of being assessed of over 39 million pounds of losses over three years, it's going to be 13 million pounds for 2019, 26 million by the time we get to 2020 and 39 for 2021, because that's what happened in respect of Birmingham City when they had their points deduction. So it makes a lot of sense to shift that, those profits into a later year because they'll qualify for now for three years going forwards for FFP. And the stadium issue is the same reason that Derby uh, are, according to your tweet, the only club not to publish Accounts in the top two divisions for 2018-19. No, that's a different that's, issue. That's a di- yeah. Dar- Derby were charged on two issues with by the EFL. The first was the profit on the sale of the stadium, and they successfully defended their case there. The second was the way that they account for football players. Normally, if let's say that you sign a footballer for for 12 million pounds on a four-year contract, we introduce. Jargon coming up, jargon word, amortisation, yeah, sends yeah. everybody into a state of fear. All that you say is 12 divided by four years equals £3 million a year. What Derby did, they came up with an unusual way of dealing with it. They say, we're not going to do £3 million a year. At the end of each season, we are going to value the players and we're going to stick them in the balance sheet for what we think we could sell them for at the end of that season. Now, is that rule acceptable? I've done a lot of research into this. I think it is probably probably just about acceptable because I've seen some research papers on similar things. It is certainly not best practice. It is certainly not industry practice. And it was described by the, uh, by the panel of arbitration as being not transparent and amongst other things i mean the, the, the criticism but they have, whilst we don't whilst we don't think that you uh, have been very clear about things we, we're not necessarily going to uh, charge you on it now why is that important 
It just so happened that it reduced Derby's losses by £30 million over the three-year assessment period for uh, financial fair play. Therefore, they didn't suffer a points deduction. That's the issue that the EFL are appealing. It's an intriguing situation. And our buddy Nick DeMarco's uh, is, is 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 on the case, so to speak. Yeah, we are. There's it's they've they've appealed to the EFL. They lost. They effectively lost the first hearing. Uh, Derby was slapped on the wrist for the amortisation policy for not being entirely straight with the EFL. The EFL, under a lot of pressure from other Championship clubs, has appealed. They do have a, a track record of appealing. So that's where we're at. It's all, it's all got a bit held up. So that's why they haven't uh, filed their accounts, because they may well have to restate their accounts, as Sheffield Wednesday have. Now, now, Kieran, there's another issue I wanted to ask you, because I know it's one of your, um, in the, just like straight line amortization, it's one of your bugbears. And that's this issue of transparency. We had Simon Hallett on the pod last week, who we praised for his yeah. transparency. Yeah. Plymouth Argyle, would, guy. he owns Plymouth Argyle, they would count as a small company. And as a small company, they don't necessarily have to file, or, well, they have to, they do have to show someone, but they don't have to file full accounts to company's house where you and I can pick through them. He chooses to file full accounts and he sticks them in a very prominent place on the website. You don't have to go through some weird tab, look at the kind of corporate history of a football club to find a tiny link at the bottom to their accounts. No, he's very, very upfront. Now, I know you strongly feel that football clubs, because they are effectively owned by us, really, you know, we're their best customers, aren't we? You know, aren't we? We, we should be able to see what's going on. Do you feel that owners are hearing that? Why don't they want to tell us more? What should happen? Should the government kind of change the rules here? I do feel football clubs play a unique place in, in British society in, in the sense that they are the they are the modern community. They are the replacement to, to religion. You know, people who don't people don't go to church. They do go to football grounds. It's a place where people gather. I've seen what's happened at Bury. I, I, I was going to the meetings at Bury Town Hall when that club was in, in the final throes of, of its existence. And it, and it was terrible to watch. You and I both, well, I, I used to live in Macclesfield. You, you live near Macclesfield, Matt. You, we, we've seen you know, the, the loss of that club. It, it's a loss of jobs as well. The club, the football clubs are approaching fans and saying, can you decline your season ticket refund? You know, we're giving you the option of doing so. And the vast majority of fans have turned around and said, yes. Now, that would not happen in any other industry. So I had, I had tickets to go and see uh, some of the European Championship matches this summer. I had flights all booked. I, I've been on to Ryanair. Where's my refund? You know, and I didn't think twice. I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not worried about the guy, the, the chief executive of, of Ryanair. I, I'm, 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 I, nobody wants to see people lose their jobs, but I want my money back and I'm getting my money back. When it comes to football, we take a different approach. So if football clubs want fans to behave in a non-traditional consumer manner, then they need to treat fans as being more than just consumers to bit, and to acknowledge that we are the biggest stakeholders in the game because we are the schleps that, you know, I, I remember going to see us lose 7-1 on a Tuesday night at Huddersfield, being thoroughly disgusted, you know, that walking out the ground, never going again. You know, I'm, I'm never going to see that shower of rubbish again. And next Saturday, you know, again, I've, I've got on the six o'clock train from Macclesfield down to Brighton to go and watch us play football because that that is football. Therefore, because 
football clubs are so unique in terms of their relationship, they should have additional scrutiny. 99% of fans don't care about the accounts, but there's always one dweeby person at every, you know, within every supporter group who will go, I'll take a look. My, my club, Brighton, would not be in existence had it not been for one of those dweeby fans who saw that the club had posted to Company's House that they changed the Articles of Association, which is the club's internal constitution, such that if the club went out of business and the ground was sold at a profit, the profits now went to the directors and shareholders instead of previously it went into the local community. And when that was found, that was the only time that, that Graham Kelly and co actually took an interest. They realised that this was a, an idea of using a football a club as a means of making money. Football clubs are too important to not be transparent. Uh, we will have to leave it there. John's plugged the book before we, we say bye. I've written a book for my students, okay, because it wasn't a book on football finance. I teach football finance. So I, I wrote a book called The Price of Football. Um, I didn't expect it to sell any copies. It sold a few more than that. So uh, the second edition's just come out. It's updated. It's got bits more on the impact of COVID, quite a lot on Project Big Picture. Uh, and things of that nature in terms of governance and the game. If you really got, if you really cannot get to sleep, give it some consideration. <laughs> it's much better than that, Kieran. Uh, Matt has a copy in his hand at this very moment. Kieran, as ever, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks, Kieran. Thank you. Thanks, guys. You can subscribe to The Athletic for a special price of £3.99 a month for six months. That's 40% off the full price of subscription. You'll enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. Go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman to take advantage of this special 40% discount. That's theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. And we're back next week. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.